tell to get old. You know, getting old is not for wusses, I swear to God. You better have some backbone if you're going to do this deal one day at a time for a long time. Hi, everybody. I'm Patty, and I'm an alcoholic. Can you see me? I don't want you to miss a lick of this and, and see my pretty face. I'm, I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Patty Lacascio, and I'm a member of the Midday Matinee Group in Tampa, Florida. My sobriety date is February the 8th, 1977, and I don't think I had a damn thing to do with that one. <laughs> I just got, I, I got to step zero. This crap's got to stop. And, um... And for the first time on that day, I, I said not to help me stop drinking. I didn't want to lay, live the way I was living anymore, and I didn't. And I finally told the truth, and I hadn't told the truth in a long time. And my truth was I didn't know how to live any other way. And, um, oh, I hate this arrangement, but we got to do the deed. All right. Um, can everybody hear this sad-ass story I'm about ready to tell you? I don't want you to miss a look of it. Sometimes it's so sad I get to cry about it, you know? And I'm not a crier. Um, I'm born in Tampa from what I... I'm not sure of any of this, but this is what I, I think happened. I'm born in a... I was born in a charity ward... And there were no doctors there. There were only midwives. And um, two women, an Irish woman probably with red hair, went in, very pregnant. And a six-foot-one uh, Ojibwa, uh, Canadian Ojibwa Indian went in, both pregnant. And the Canadian Ojibwa Indian came out with me. And they finally proved I'd been to genetic uh, testing uh, in the last 10 years, and they have proven beyond a doubt that I don't have any Indian blood in me. Um, well, you can tell that. I'm, good, I'm getting ready to expose myself. See, I see how white I am. This is suntan. And um, Florida sun. Anyway, um, uh, she didn't like white people, and I don't blame her. I don't blame her. And starting at about a year and a half or two years, she started putting cigarette butts out on me, and she would break my arms and my legs. That was, uh, and we never lived indoors. We lived outdoors. And I was hungry all the time. And I had an older sister, in, um, uh, Tina, and she was uh, uh, an Indian, and she had black hair parted in the middle, bronze skin. And turned out she was six foot two. My mom was six foot one, and I had two brothers. Uh, John and Vernon, they were six five and six seven, and I'm five three and a half. So it just, you know, it, you could tell. Anyway, um, at, when I was about four, she started selling me to white men uh, for sex, and by the time I was eight, I had syphilis, and uh, they finally took me away from her, and um, I was adopted by uh, by a couple, and they took me to Washington D.C. And uh, they were bo both born in Sicily in 1890, and they came to America in 1908. And Papa was the, the oldest of 16, and my mama was the baby of seven. And it was just like a big, fat Greek wedding. I had more first cousins 
and uh, all named Tony and Maria. <laughs> and uh, and uh, my papa uh, was quite wealthy, uh, very wealthy, and he was also the head of a big family, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. <laughs> I didn't know about any of that stuff. I didn't know what it meant that guys would call him Smokey Joe. And my maiden name was uh, Tarantino. And um, Quentin is my third cousin, two times removed. And I got, I've met him a couple of times. And uh, oh boy, I used to think I was weird. <laughs> a boy strange. Um, but we're not supposed to bed now, our relatives are. <laughs> so, um, they took me, I had never had a bath, I had never seen a flush toilet, I had never seen anything. We lived out on the streets. And so when I got adopted, this first night they tried to give me a bath, I had never, I'd never seen a flush toilet, and they wanted me to get on top of that, and I thought that water was going to suck me down, and I was frightened of it, and I had never had a bath in a bathtub, and um, I didn't want any part of that. And I was loaded with bugs and everything. So the next day they took me to the doctor and I had tuberculosis and I was dying of malnutrition and I had rickets so bad, both legs I could hardly stand up. And uh, so they put me in the Tacoma Park Sanitarium run by the Seventh-day Adventist outside Washington, D.C. And I was there for a year. Uh, and thank God they had just come along with penicillin. And, and so I, penicillin helped the tuberculosis and the syphilis. And um, my adoptive mother came every day, and now everybody thought she was just a really beautiful. She looked just like Claudette Colbert. She was so beautiful. She was four foot eleven, and and uh, and everybody thought she was this just sweet Sicilian Gumati, you know. And she taught me how to read and write, and she taught me mathematics. And she came every day, and my papa came. And one time, um, I I. One time I remember asking my papa, why did you adopt me? And I knew I would never get the truth out of him. And I still to this day don't know the truth why I got adopted. And in a time when people didn't adopt babies, but they didn't adopt eight-year-old sick little girls. And, and he looked at me and he said, I love you, Red Curls. And I thought, that's it. That's the closest I'm ever going to get to the truth. And... Um, so, I, I, and then I had a year of bed rest that I got, after I got to the hospital, and I had never seen, I had just never seen anything like this, my bedroom and a private sitting room and a private bath, and I, they had hired a black mama for me, and she had her own bedroom and a sitting room and a private bath on the second floor, and we lived six blocks from the Capitol, and, um... And, but the best thing of all was this electric refrigerator downstairs, and I used to go in the middle of the night and open it up, and there was food. And I thought, this must be heaven, because they talk about heaven. This is heaven, because I could eat what I wanted to. And, um, and then I was getting to be about 10 years old, and I was getting well physically, and I was putting on weight, and I intuitively knew that this new thing they were talking about, Catholics, Schools. I didn't know what it was, but I didn't like it. Hadn't, didn't like it. I, I intuitively didn't like it. And so my first day in Catholic school, I had my 
first spiritual experience. And, and I'm sitting there, Mommy had dressed me in this cute little outfit, and my hair was all in French braids and bow ribbons, and I, and this, the door opened, and this big penguin, and, and she, it looked like she was gliding, and like a ghost, and I was scared to death. And they jumped up out of their chairs and put their hands by their sides, and they were just like toy soldiers. And they said, good morning, sister. And I, I didn't know what the deal was. And she looked at me and pointed her finger, and she snapped her fingers. And back then, they used to teach nuns how to snap their fingers, and you, they can hear you two blocks away. And she said, Tarantino, up. And now I still had the language of the street, and I stuttered horribly, and I, I still have a big speech impediment. But um, I didn't, I had, I said bad words, and my parents knew that I was getting better, but I thought I greeted her with such dignity and respect. I think I said something like, hey, bitch, you talking to me, you know, something like that. And she came over and boom! And she socked me. She didn't hit me. She socked me in my jaw, and I went down on the floor, and nose of blood was running out of my nose. I thought my ear was ringing, and I thought she had broke my jaw. And I got up off the floor, and I said, what the F did you do that for? <laughs> she hit me again. I'm down on the floor. And, and you know, street people were quick learners, because if you don't learn quick, they're, they're going to eat you alive out there. And, and I thought, whoa, this is, this is bad. So by the end of the day, I got about four or five more great big, not whippings, beatings. And I tell you, that red-headed Irish Leo temper marched up 6th Street Hill in Washington, D.C. I couldn't wait to get home and tell my father about that beat. I'm telling you, I, I, he was going to go and he was going to straighten her out. And, and I, I was so angry that my stuttering, I couldn't get anything and it took a long time. And finally he said, well, what did she say? Well, what did you say? And, and then my papa did something that he only did two times in my whole life. My father whipped me that day, and he was yelling, Disgraziano, you will never disgrace me again. And so I had a spiritual awakening that day. And here's the two lessons I learned. Number one, never, ever, ever talk back to authority. Just do what they want you to do. Just say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yes, sister, and then do what you want to do. You know, the whole thing. But just agree with them, you know, and that makes them feel good. And they, 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 they think they're the boss. And the second spiritual lesson I learned that day was, don't tell Papa anything. And so I learned how to bury all of that stuff, right along with everything else I had buried from the Indian raping, having them rape me and, and breaking my bones and starving me to death and laughing at me. So I buried everything. And, and so I went uh, the next day back to school and the nun said, do you know how to read? And I said, yes, sister, I do. And it took me a long time to get that out. I was so scared of her. Uh, not because of what she could do to me, but I was so angry. I just wanted to show her. I just wanted to show her. And I said, yes, I And she gave me a book, and I read. And she said, do you know mathematics? And I said, 
Yes, as Jerry said, my mother and I just finished algebra, and we're going to start on trigonometry and calculus. And she said, you what? And so I spent a month in the fifth grade, a month in the sixth grade, a month in the seventh grade, and a month in the eighth grade. And I was 10 years old, and they put me in high school. And they had me tested. And it turns out I have a big, big high IQ and not a lick of common sense. And I don't know if that makes me into why I'm an alcoholic, but I swear to God, I think it has a lot to do with it because I do some of the most stupid things. And here's what I do. I miss the obvious. Y'all, you guys get it. I remember one time saying to Katie, Katie Martin Haygood, my first sponsor of 23 years, she died when I was 23 years sober. She was from Texas, and she was, she was a little woman. She got in sober January 1939, and Bill Wilson was her sponsor. And she had a whiskey voice, and she talked like this, and she was no nonsense, and she sponsored alcoholics. That meant she sponsored men and women, and she didn't care. And if you asked her why she sponsored men, she'd tell you, it's none of your GD business. Mind your own business. Take your own damn inventory. Uh, and uh, that's the way she was, but she was MBS. She was no bull poop. And uh, uh, she just, uh, she said, you want to get well? And I said, yes, ma'am. And, and, uh, and she'd say, well, let's do the steps. Read the book. Let's do the steps. One day I asked her, I said, will you help me get uh, spiritual? I need to get spiritual. And one of the speakers spoke to it. And I'm sorry, I forgot which one. Boy, y'all were hell. Y'all were something. Y'all were fabulous. Well, you rocked me. And uh, she said, I'll give you a spiritual 1-800-GET-IT-JOB. And, uh, so, but anyway, let me finish my sad-ass little story here. And, uh, so, um, so I graduated, uh, my, I lost my mama when I was 13. I had her five years, and my father was devastated. He loved my mother, and he loved her, and he was devastated. So I would go, uh, the chauffeur would take me to school on Monday, and I would stay Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night with the nuns in the boarding school portion of it. And then I would come home Friday, Saturday, and Sunday with my papa. But my house always had one of my uncles. My father was uh, beside the other business. He was uh, United Clay Construction in Washington, D.C., and he built most of the Senate and House office buildings. And he, he, every building, and he built the Smithsonian Institute of Natural History. And in Washington, D.C. And so he made a lot of money off of that, off of this building. And my, all of his baby brothers, there were 14 boys and two girls in his family, they were all subcontractors. So there was always somebody at my house. And I still had my beautiful, my mother's mother, my, my grandmama. And she was, oh, man, she was, she was a bitch. I'm telling you, that was a woman in the And uh, she loved me so much. And um, so I did well, and, and finally, when I was 15 years old, I graduated from high school, and I told Pop, I said, I want to go to law school, and I want to be an attorney. I'm going to be the first female Supreme Court Justice in the United States of America. And he said, no, no, baby girl. He said, Sicilian women don't go to university. You, you go sit in the kitchen with the ladies and drink a little iron set and make babies. And to that end, he invited two guys over from Sicily for me to pick the one I wanted to marry. 
And the one was a womanizer. He was really Italian silk suits, and he was thin. He was a good dancer. But he never looked at my face. He would look at a woman from here to here. And he looked at every woman that way. And I thought, I'll kill this son of a bitch. <laughs> and so Daddy sent him back to Sicily. And then uh, I can remember, it, it, see, I have a good memory, I, almost a photographic memory. And the second one was Tullio Sevilio. And Tullio was nice. He had a good sense of humor. But he weighed about 350, 400 pounds. And I weighed about 89 pounds, so we're heading down to the beach this one summer, Sunday, and I'm looking to Tulio, and I know how babies are made, and I'm looking at Tulio, and I look down at me, and I think, he's going to squish me. And um, so he took me to this North Beach, Maryland. Well, back then, it was a beach where you didn't take decent white men, only loose women and motorcycle people and hillbillies and, and pull white trash onto this beach. And I was thinking, I was laughing. I thought, my father's going to kill this SOB when he figures out what beach he took me to. But, you know, so it was Ewald's Tavern. I remember the name of the place we went to. And we walked in, and it was dark, and they had gambling and slot machines, and they were playing that hillbilly music. You know, help me make it through the night late. Hold your warm and tender body close to mine. Lay your head upon my pillow. Yes, that was good music, you know. And uh, he bought me a Miller High Life beer. And I had it, and it was wet, cold, and delicious. And by the third beer, it had gotten to my tummy, and it went boom. You, you see, you're alcoholic. Now, you Alanites, you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> but that alcohol gets down here, and it goes boom. And something magical and mystical happened. Baby, boom. You know? That's what we live for. And all of a sudden, I wasn't 89 pounds. I wasn't flat-chested. Uh, I, I didn't have this kinky red hair. At, and by the fourth or fifth beer, I was a combination of Marilyn Monroe, Deanna Dior's, and Jane Mansfield. I had titties growing right in front of my eyes. I didn't stutter anymore. I was telling jokes to the boys. I was dancing with every guy in the place. I was having a hell of a good time. And I had never had a good time in my life. And I was having a good time. And I, I, had, I started a 22-year love affair, and it had nothing to do with Julio's civilian. It was alcohol. Well, was my boyfriend, my new boyfriend. Because, baby, that alcohol did for me what nothing had ever done before. And I, all of a sudden, I looked over at Tulio, and I was given the gift of reading minds. That's one of the benefits of drinking alcohol. You can read minds. And, and Tulio was thinking, it's only going to take one more beer. And so I started giving him ESP, and I was trying to give him, I'm looking at Carl, and I'm going to give him... If you live to be a thousand, you ain't going to get in my drawers. And, and, uh, and we never saw, we never saw Tulio again. And uh, Daddy shipped him back. And, and uh, Daddy made me get a job in Washington, D.C. I went to work for the State Department. Oh, man, I had four top secret clearances. Um, I, I, I just was not cut out for a nine-to-five job. 
I didn't do well. Um, and and uh, and Papa would start and say things like, "You drink too much. You drink all the time. You come home late. Where you where you been? Where you been?" And you know the answer. Out. Where you been? Out. What you doing? Nothing. How many drinks? How much? How many drinks? Two. Two. And finally, Papa had me put back in the Tacoma Park Sanitarium and Hospital. And now it wasn't a TV hospital anymore. Now it was a fancy drying out place in Washington, D.C. for senators and congressmen and, and uh, ambassadors and Patty Ann. And, and their treatment was electric shock therapy, baby. And I had 26 of those. And it must have worked because I wasn't drinking, but I couldn't remember my name. And I intuitively knew that I had to get out of there or else I was going to die. I just knew I was going to die. And so I got myself thrown out of there. I made, I went to occupational therapy and I, they gave me play and I built, built a uh, anatomically correct male member. <laughs> that was circumcised. <laughs> and the woman came in and she said, oh, what have we got here? And she looked at it and she said, oh, no, look. And she was smacking it down and they threw me out. I didn't go to my father's house. I, I came back to Florida and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I could never be around my father. Um, again, as much as I love my father, I knew I could never be around him. And, um, I met three three guys in Florida. They were the Mackle brothers, and they were building this big development off the coast of Naples, Florida. It was a little mangrove island called Marco Island, and I was selling Marco Island back in 1952 for $3,500 for a seawalled lot. Now they go a million plus for a seawalled lot. And, uh, and then 10 years later, the Mackle brothers, who became, I think, U.S. homes, took me up, and we sold something called Spring Hill, Florida. So by the time I was 20, I had made my first million. And by the time I was uh, 26, I had been married two times. My first husband died the day my son was born. My first child was born. Two drunken teenagers on the wrong side of the road crashed into him and split in two. And, um, and then I had married again, and my baby died within 12 hours. We were still in the hospital, and she died of something called SIDS. And... A couple of months later, my husband also had an accident, and so I'm 26, 27 years old, and I'm a widow two times and, and lost one baby. And this Catholic God that I come to believe in, I didn't want to hear anything more about God or anything. Um, and love, I just didn't want to, there was nothing, you know, it was all a sham. All of it was a lie. And I just, the only thing I wanted to do was to raise my baby, my son, and, and give him a good life and, and let him know that I loved him, that I would, I would never abandon him. I used to tell myself that every day I will never abandon you. And um, my girlfriend that I'd gone to high school with was having, good Catholic girl, was having her 11th child. And she died in childbirth, having her 11th child. And I was already godmother to three of her 11 children. 
And two months later, her husband, Keith, died in a, a, fate, a real horrible, horrible accident. So the kids had nobody. And so I went up to Hammond, Indiana, and I, um, I had a lot of money, but as I say, no common sense. And I went that Monday morning to the judge, and uh, I said, I want to adopt the kids, and my banker and my lawyer are going to call you and tell you I'm a, I'm a good person and I have plenty of money. And he said, why should I let you adopt these children? And I said, you don't want 11 kids on the welfare rolls of the state of Indiana. And he looked at me, and then he started signing the adoption papers. And so uh, that night, I got them all in bed, and I was sitting on the toilet. You know, that's the best place that alcoholics do their best thing, sitting on the john at night in the quiet. And I thought, my God, what have I done? Twelve kids. And the oldest was ten and a half, and the baby was two months. Twelve kids under ten and a half. And I thought, somehow I'll do it. I'm a survivor. Patty is a survivor. I, 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 my God, I can do this. I can do this. And, um, and I took them back to Florida, and we used to, <laughs> we laughed a lot. I tell you, my kids, I didn't know, I didn't know how to be a mommy. I really didn't, because I had never been taught how to be a mommy. And, and, uh, uh, never, I mean, you know. And, um, and I would say to the kids, you know, mommy doesn't know what she's doing. And they'd say, yeah, mom, we know. And, uh, and I'd say, we have plan A. We have plan A. And if that doesn't work, we have plan B. And the little kids would say, come on, plan A. And we'd have little rooting sessions. And, 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 I, and I hired a cook, and then I hired a housekeeper, and then I hired somebody, uh, a male, and he was a nice guy. He was an older man, and I checked him out thoroughly, and he had a red vest on. He had a suit on, and he had a red vest. And I thought, ah, that's that little panache. You know, I like that. And he loved my kids and my kids, and so he drove them all to soccer practice and baseball and football and doctor's appointments, and I got to sell real estate and make money. And then we got, um, I homeschooled the kids, because Florida's never been known for its schools at all. I won't talk about, I was going to say something horrible about one of our football players, but never mind. Engage your brain for a second before you engage your mouth. Okay, then I don't have to make 10-step amends to the whole world and to Janus. Um, so, chocolate. Um, anyway, so... So we're doing pretty good. We're doing the deal pretty good. And I'm going to, with this love affair with booze, and, and the kids are growing, and, uh, and then they're growing, and then they're growing, and it comes time for university. And I remember I used to say this mantra, haven't you kids ever heard of state schools? You know, and, uh, and all of a sudden I had to make a lot more money in my drinking. And, and, and we did... We did pretty good. There wasn't a whole lot of anything that I, I wasn't able to handle. And, um, and, then, and then the beginning of the end came where I didn't. You know there's that line in the book where we, uh, we find it impossible to control and enjoy our drinking. 
But when I was controlling my drinking, I wasn't enjoying it. When I was enjoying it, I wasn't controlling it. And and you know the big and then the beginning of the end kept. And then I started getting in trouble with the uh, legal authority. I've never had a DUI. Never. I've never had a ticket in 67 years of driving. I've never had a ticket. But I had this temper on me, and and this and the cops telling me what to do. And, and I started carrying this gun, a bad deal for an alcoholic. And, and I, Katie told me one time, she said, you know, Patty, you should have been on the Olympic shooting team because you hit everything you ever aimed at, you know. And uh, uh, cops give me some crap, I blow their kneecap off. You know, I don't want to kill them. I just want them to shut up. And, uh, and they don't like that, so I started going to jail. And... And to make a long story short, I was five times in the penitentiary, and every time I would go in, I would smack one of the female officers, and I'd get 30, 60, 90 days in the hole just in time for my father to get me out of prison. It was like a revolving door. And, and the fifth time I went in, uh, my father made it known that he didn't care whether I lived or died. So let me get sober. And... It was January 1959. Uh, I'll go back to my first meeting. January 1959, I'm in Chicago, and I'm buying rental property. And this is even before I adopted the kids. And I was in the city of Chicago, and this fellow by the name of uh, John Murphy, he was an old railroad guy that had gone to real estate, and he was showing me property up by the Edgewater Beach Hotel north on Lake Sheridan Drive there right on the lake. And uh, I was there for a whole month, and I, I bought some good properties. And he kept saying or hinting at, Patty Ann, you drink a lot. You drink a lot. And finally, when I was just about ready to leave town and go back to Florida, he said, would you mind attending a meeting with me Sunday night at this hotel in downtown uh, and he was good-looking, and I was a widow, and I thought he wanted to do a little hanky-panky, and I, and I said, sure. And so my God, it was Sunday night, March 1959, he takes me to an AMA meeting. Jesus, and I hear I thought I was going to get lucky, and take me to an AMA meeting, AMA meeting. And there were all men there, and they were none of them under 50, and one of them I think he had been dead three days. They forgot to bury his butt. And one smelled musty, and, you know, and they couldn't rub two nickels together. And they're, give, they're giving me a first step, and they're trying to convince me that my life is unmanageable. And I'm 23 years old. I'm young, pretty, rich, and intelligent, and these poor bastards couldn't rub two nickels together, and they're trying to convince me my life is unmanageable. And I go, boy, this is a big joke. And finally, at the end of the meeting, this one obnoxious old SOB pointed his finger at me and he said, Hey, girl, you want what we have? And I thought, Hell no. I hope it's not touching. And, and, uh, but something happened that night. And something happened for the next 18 years and one month. And Katie asked me, Why did you keep going to AA? You never, you never had a desire to stop drinking. Why would, did you keep going to AA? Even when you went to the penitentiary, you went to AA. 
And I said that was the first time I had been in a room full of men that didn't want anything out of me except my highest good. And that impressed the hell out of me. And it continues to impress the hell out of me. From January 1959 until today, no man has ever betrayed the trust of Alcoholics Anonymous to this female. And I'm tired of men getting a bad rap. Because there's just as many snakeheads as there are snakes and alcoholics and honors. So let's face up to that little fact, you know. So don't you women be too easy to point your finger at the guys that are hitting on you. There's just as many females hitting on the guys. Now that we've got that out of the way, we can get go on. I just love AA. I love AA and I love AA people. We're so we're funny. We're the funniest people on the face of the earth, you know. I swear to God, there's more politics and going on in AA than there is out with Donald Trump and all those other dudes, you know. I just and positioning, you know, we position, we position ourselves. And it's so funny. Now that I'm thirty nine years sober, I swear to God, the older I get in age and in sobriety, the funnier it gets, you know. And I just sit back and this is better than a, a soap opera. I just love to watch it sometimes. Okay, we gotta get serious. And so I don't even know what time it is. What time is it? Oh, thank God for smartphones. Oh baby, I gotta get sober. And uh so, uh, February the 8th rolls around. I've been going to meetings 18 years in one month. Go to a meeting every day, get drunk every night, one day at a time. I know a lot about living one day at a time. And, and uh, I'm getting in trouble, and, and I'm smart enough, and smart enough to make trust funds for my children. And even though my life is turning to poo-poo, at least they're going to be taken care of. But they didn't want that. You know what my kids wanted? They wanted their mama. That's all they ever wanted was their mama. And I thought I had to go out and make money so that I could they could have the best of everything. That, that's not what they wanted. They wanted me at home. And I didn't know that until I got sober. See, sometimes I'm so smart and other times I just am so ignorant. I'm so ignorant of things. And um, so February the 8th rolls around and and I said that prayer. And I said, dear God, I said, I don't want to live the way I'm living. And I don't know how to live any other way. And I remember saying, you got to help me. And they found me crawling down the seventh floor corridor of Lakeland, Florida, Lakeland General Hospital. And there was nothing that resembled a woman. I was just bloated with booze and, and just, oh, my God, I mean, it was just awful. And this man named Bob Terry thought he recognized me because I had attended meetings there many a times. And he propped me up against the wall. I couldn't even stand up. I was just so weak from the alcohol. And he propped me up against the wall and he said, Patty? And I, I went like that. And he put his arms around me and he kissed me. And he said, welcome back, babe. And, and I died. I died. And 33 months later, I come to and I had open heart surgery. And I was on kidney dialysis, and I was my, I only had 15% of my liver, and I was on insulin because I have alcohol-induced diabetes. But other than that, I'm in good shape. <laughs> and um, and uh, so, and I had just come out of this coma, and in walks this massive, this little 
Moxie, and she has the book under her arm like one of these Southern Baptists, you know, and, and she's fierce. She even walks like a Nazi, and she comes in the room, and she said, congratulations, they've assigned me to be your sponsor. I'm your new guy. And now, I had three months before had just said to God, you got to help me. But see how we want help? On our own conditions. See, we don't want, we don't want that Nazi. We want someone loving and generous and, and, and uh, politically correct. Doesn't that make you want to puke that we have to be politically correct? They used to say to me, shut up and get in the car, stupid. Now you say that to a newcomer, they'll report you to New York. Because I get reported a lot. And they, I call, they, I have a message, call the general service office, and I call up and I say, now what did I do? Did you say this and this? And I said, yeah. And I said, what business is it of yours, what I said? And they said, none. I said, hang up the phone. No sense at all. Anyway. Getting back to my Saturday story. Um, I know. And so uh, she looked at me while she was there that day. She looked at me and she said, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, is your life unmanageable, drinking or not drinking? And I thought about it. And I thought my worst times had been when I'd been trying to be sober. That was my worst times. I was okay drinking. It's when I try to be sober. That's when all hell broke loose. And, and I said, yeah, and I told her why. And she said, congratulations. And then she said, by the way, are you powerless? And I said, yeah, I am powerless. Not only alcohol. I said, I've been, they say I haven't had a drink in three months, and I can't get out of this hospital bed and walk and go make pee-pee. I can't even walk. Three months I haven't had a drink, and I can't walk. And there's nothing wrong with my life. I think that's pretty powerless. And she said, I agree. Congratulations, we've now done step one. <laughs> and then she said to me, are you willing to believe? Do you believe or are you even willing to believe there's something bigger than you that can help you? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, yes. And she said, why? And I said, I've been going to AA for 18 years in one month. So they tell me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, and I watch. I don't listen to what they, comes out of your mouth. I watch the feet of these people. I watch your actions. And I said, the people that are getting their families back and getting their self-respect back and getting their souls back and getting decency and honor back, these are the people that sit around the tables and say, I can stay sober simply because I've come to believe in a power greater than myself that of myself I'm nothing, but with this power I can do anything. So based on the fact that they believe, I'm willing to believe. And she just looked at me. And she said, congratulations, honey, we've now done step two. And then she came over and grabbed my hands. And, and I thought, uh-oh, this is it. This is the big deal. This is it. And she said, Dear God, oh, by the way, Katie cussed a little. <laughs> now, I'm going to clean up what she said to God, but she cussed. And if you try to correct her on her language, she was 39 years sober at the time she started sponsoring me. 
And if you try to correct her language, I wouldn't advise you. She's dead now, but you don't do that. Don't go that. She'd tell you in a heartbeat what you could do to yourself before you went to where she wanted you to go, what you could do to yourself before you went there. And, uh, and she grabbed my hands and she said, There now, this Katie Martin Haygood, every time I do it, try to do it my way, I F up. I'm going to do it your way today, God. Oh, it turns out better. Amen. And not many people it, uh, intimidate me. Not many people do. And she intimidated me. And I was scared. You know why I was scared? Because I knew that God had sent this woman into my life to save my life. And I knew that I might not say the right words and that she would walk out the door and leave me. And I was scared. I was really, really scared. And so I'm holding her hands, and I know she wants me to say something. And I close my eyes, and I say, Dear God, please, please put the right words in my mouth. And I say, Dear God, this is Patty Ann. And I was waiting for God to help me. And finally, in desperation, I said, Ditto! <laughs> and she pulled back, and her eyes got this big. Now, I'm going to cuss. I'm going to say what she actually said. Her eyes got this big, and she said, God, that's the best goddamn third-step prayer I ever heard in my life. And she came and kissed me on the cheek, and she walked out of the room with her book under her arm, and she turned around, she says, I'll be back tomorrow. We'll get started on your fourth-step inventory. And then when she left, the nurse ran in the room, and she said, Are you okay? Your heart monitor is going, like that. And I said, I don't know if you understand, but I think God sent that woman in to save my life, and I, I better do what she tells me to do. I have a feeling that this is my last chance. And the nurse says, well, okay, but we'll listen tomorrow. And if she, if she, you can say, come and get her, and we'll throw her out. And I said, okay. And the next day she came, and we started on the fourth-step inventory. And I wrote the fourth-step. She gave me instructions, but, you know, we don't. Have any of you followed instructions on a regular basis out there? I, neither do I. And so I wrote out my life story, and it was like one of those Robin's novels. You know, it had just enough sex to be titillating. And just, but, it, but I was still a good girl, you know. And it just everything I came out the heroine. And it was my life story. Survivor. And she read it, and she just tore it up right in front of my face. And she said, Patty Ann, I don't know a damn thing about you after reading this. She said, all you've told me is every filthy, dirty, nasty thing you've ever done. Step five doesn't want you to tell. I don't need to hear every filthy, dirty, nasty thing you've ever done. I need to know the exact nature of your wrongs, and you need to know the exact nature of your wrongs. So she bought me the 12 and 12, and she made me read Chapter 4 about social instincts, security instincts, and sexual instincts. And she said, these are all God-given. They're real good things. And we just, we just screw them all up. And that's where your character defects are in there. I want you to write, why, why do you steal? Why do you lie? Why? did a lot of writing, and I found out that I was one 
fearful, little, teeny, brat baby girl who had never grown up. I was just as much that little eight-year-old girl then as I was when I was 41 years old, when I was in that hospital with that open-heart surgery, trying to not drink one day at a time. I was that same little eight-year-old fucking little girl that didn't know what the hell to do. And I needed somebody to tell me what to do, how to live. And I'll do it, but just tell me what to do. And Katie says, I'm not about to tell you what to do. And I I said, but I'm so scared. And she said to me, okay, do you, on the roadmap of life, Patty Ann, do you know where you're at? I said, no. And she said, on the roadmap of life, do you know where you're going? And I said, no. And I started getting kind of pissed at her for, for making me feel all these things. And I finally, I looked at her and I said, on the damn roadmap of life, I know where I've been and I never want to go back there again. And my God, she's, hallelujah, sweet Jesus. And she kissed me again and she said, that's the best beginning of all, baby girl. We got a chance. And, and if you ask me today, Patty Ann, do you know where you're going? Because a lot of times I've said the truth. No. I think I'm going in the right direction. And today, here's the deal. If I find out that I made a mistake, I can always turn around and go back the other, or go another whole way. I can admit to you I, I was wrong. Remember in the old days when we listened to Happy Days and the Fonz? And he could never say, I, I'm sorry I was wrong, 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 wrong. He could never say wrong. And today, what is it to say, I'm wrong? I was, I, okay, I'm wrong. I better do it different. That's, it's easy in Alcoholics Anonymous today. I, at least I'm finding it easier to do. Well, let me tell you one, one more story, and then uh, we'll all get out of here and have a good year and help these fine folks celebrate their, their upcoming 31st one. This, it's going to be get better and better for y'all. I can just feel it. So I'm sitting there, and I'm getting sober. I'm out of the hospital. She took me home, and people said to her, Katie, you're supposed to carry the message, not the alcoholic. She said, oh, that's Bob. I'll do what I damn well want to do. So she took me home with her. And then I had to get a job, and I was not employable. And so I got a job washing dishes at the Waffle House for about 15 an hour. And she said I couldn't quit until I was the best dishwasher in all of Lakeland, Florida. And there were three Seminole Indians there that were dishwashers, and those four buzzards were born to wash dishes. And I I knew I would never be the best dishwasher in all of Lakeland, Florida, but I really tried. And anyway, so... So one day we're sitting in the meeting, and, and now she's sponsoring nine of us. She, she had been in Texas, and God said, you have to go to Lakeland, Florida. She didn't even know where Lakeland, Florida was. And she went, and she was there three years. She sponsored nine of us. I'm the oldest in age but the baby in sobriety. My sister, Abby, is November 14, 1976, and I'm the baby of the nine of us at February the 8th, 1977, and we're all still sober. Nine women, all still sober because we had the same sponsor who believed in the program of Action Alcoholics Anonymous, the steps, the traditions, and the concepts of service. Katie used to say, if you just take the 12 steps, you're only one-third sober. 
this is 12 steps, 12 traditions, and 12 concepts of service. You gotta, Dr. Bob said it so eloquently, you know, trust God, clean house, give it away. And, and I think most of us are doing that daily today. And it's so good, we feel good inside when we're freely giving back what's been so freely given us, at least I do. You know, I feel clean inside. I feel like a human being, like a real honest-to-God human being, and I'm doing something decent for a change instead of my motives used to not be too good. Because I always wanted to get money out of your pocket into my pocket. And, and today, I, I don't think about crap like that anymore. I really don't. So, I'm trying to stay sober, and, and finally I'm a year, and they give me a big party, and they record my talk. And I, the first time I was allowed to talk was I was a year sober. And, and she comes up to me, and she kisses me and gives me my medallion, and she says, I think you ought to go to university and become a CPA. You're crazy. <laughs> I'm on life parole from prison. There's not a state in the union that's going to let me write the exam. And she looked at me like I was stupid, and she said, God will provide. <laughs> I thought the bitch is crazy. And I went to the meeting. You know how we go to different meetings and complain about our sponsor, and we get a consensus about she's really crazy, you know? And I got a consensus, and everybody agreed with me. They said, Patty Ann, why should you go to university for four years and study something you could never be? I said, see, I really like this guy. She's crazy. But you know what? I found myself going to the, the Polk Community College. And I went to, I got that associate's degree, that two-year degree in one year, because I got a big, big IIT book. Man, I tested out of almost all that crap, you know. And then I started doing resumes. Oh, that's a joke. Resume was that long. <laughs> and I was sending it out everywhere. And I, there was a steel mill in Hammond, Indiana. Hammond, Indiana, that wanted to hire a female. And they needed a female that, and, you know, that had some minority things, like being an ex-con, like being a recovering alcoholic, you know, like being a female. I, and I had a Spanish-sounding last name, but I wasn't black. That was the only thing. I wasn't black. But they hired me. And those men didn't want a female in that steel mill. And the first day I was there, I had my hard hat on. I had never had Levi's on, and I'm a prissy-ass southern woman. Never had Levi's on in my life in steel-toed boots. And Katie said I had to have my chin up and my tits out. I was a precious child of God. And I'm standing there, and, and this guy named Johnny Harper, who I still sponsor, and this was 1979, he dropped a load of steel. He was a craneman five feet away from me. He could have killed me. And I'm standing there with my chin up and my tits out and yellow urine is running down my Levi leg. Because <laughs> I was peeing my pants. And anyway, so, and they were going to pay me $15,000 a year. That I was only making 7000 in Florida. They were going to pay me $15,000 a year and play my last two years at Purdue University. And so I'm, I'm working at the mill. I'm doing good. After three years of being at the mill, they take me out 
of the union and making a supervisor of number six draw bench. I don't know if there's any steel workers in here, but it's specialized steel, and, and it's got to be the, the variances just have to be, it has to be to the, just got to be so accurate. It's gearing, it's specialized kind of gearing. And, oh, and, and, and hydraulic rods, they've got to just be perfect. And, and, and if you wanted to work in my day, you had to go make a pee-pee and give it to the nurse. And you had to be clean. If you weren't clean, you didn't work at my bay. And I got to choose my uh, uh, craneman, and I picked old Johnny Harper. He didn't think I would pick him. And I picked the man who tried to kill me three years before. And, and I just loved working the mill. I, and the guys, they were becoming my family. Just like I had an AA family, I had this, this and I was the only woman out in the mill. And they never acted untoward. They didn't, and, and, and I was making money, and I was, and my kids, I had three kids left at home by then, they were all at university, and those three kids decided to leave a 15-bedroom house with their trust funds and come live in a two-bedroom, one-bath house in Hammond, Indiana, to be with their mom and go to public school, and it was a crap school they had to go to, and they wanted that bad enough, and they did, so... And, and it was about six months before I was to graduate from Purdue University. And I thought, I'm still on life parole. What is this business God will provide? And one day my big boss man, Irv Meltner, came down and he said, Patty, and he said, have you done anything bad? And I said, no. He said, your parole officer's on the phone up in my office and needs to talk to you right now. You know what we think, alcoholics think, um, old warrant, old warrant. We, we always, yeah, and I said, oh, God, they found an old warrant. Oh, God. And I'm going up the stairs, and my legs are shaking and quaking, and uh, I pick up the phone, and he said, I don't know what you've done, but you've just gotten three governors to sign three pardons, Virginia, Texas, and Florida, where I had done time in prison. You, Three complete pardons you don't have that criminal record anymore. And I dropped the phone, and I started screaming, and everybody, the steel mill went crazy. Frank Kyle, the president, came out, and he was saying, Oh, God, Patty Ann, we're so excited for you. He said, Go home, you're useless to me. And everybody was tooting, all the crane over tooting the horns. And I went home, and I was shaking. I called Katie, and she said, I told you God would provide. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, I'm down in Indianapolis, and I got my exam book, and I ripped it open, and I, it's crowded, the room's crowded. I said, now, dear God, I'm 46 years old. We don't have time to waste. i got to pass this damn exam. i got to make money. i got to get started. And, and so i got to pass this exam on the first sitting. And I didn't know these two kids sitting next to me, and they said, Dear God, save for us. <laughs> and I passed on the first setting. But let me tell you, let me tell you one quick story, and then I really will shut up. Yeah, I got five minutes. Four minutes. I had been, I had moved in Chicago uh, during this time when I was uh, writing, getting ready to write the exam. I graduated Purdue 1982, and I was getting ready to end the steel mill. My whole division shut down what, just one day, just one day, and, and 
they were so good to all of us. They gave me six months' salary and six months' medical expenses. And it gave me time to go in and, if I did pass the exam, to do a job as an intern accountant. Because back then you had to graduate high school, uh, college four years and do one year of interning, or you could do five years at university, and I couldn't afford to do that. So it, the timing, just God worked it out. So I moved into it, and, and the kids, they were doing well, and they bought Mother as an investment. They bought me a condo at 452 West Oakdale Street, two blocks north of diversity, so 1300 North 400 West. And, and I got a job in a CPA shop within Hunt School, making, in Chicago. My life was going good, and I just was waiting to see if I passed the exam. So one Sunday, I get on the elevator, and I had my Purdue uh, Boilermaker uh, it was the fall of the year sweatshirt. And here getting on the elevator was Kellogg. Kellogg. The best, one of the best business schools. The other kid, kid was Wharton. Jesus. University of Chicago, the, the third one. University of Illinois, the fourth one. And here's my little ag school, Purdue Engineering Ag School. And they said, what's your major? And I said, I'm, I, I'm getting ready to write my CPA exam. And they said to me, isn't that an ag school, an engineering ag school? And I said, yeah. And they didn't invite me to go to breakfast with them. Why would they want a Purdue girl? They were big Wharton and Kellogg people here. So that November, I opened the, the envelope, and it said, you passed the CPA exam. You passed. The state of Indiana said I passed. So I bounded on the elevator that Sunday morning, and the other four got on, and I said, I passed, I passed, I passed. And, they, and I said, did you pass? No. Wharton. Kellogg, did you pass? No. University of Chicago, did you pass? No. University of Illinois, did you pass? I said, I think you should have gone to an ad school. I love you. Thank you.